The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Before we get into the interview, I would be honored if you would consider going to thepaulleslie.com and clicking support the show. There are quite a number of things I want to accomplish with the Paul Leslie Hour, and you can help me get more of these interviews out there to the masses. It only takes a moment, and it makes a world of difference. Last but not least, tell someone about the Paul Leslie Hour. Let them know in whatever way you can. And now let's get into the interview. Hello. Hey, is this Bill the Bounty? It sure is. Is this Paul? It sure is. How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. That's good to hear. So how 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 are things up in Nashville? Things are springing right along. Uh-huh. Getting really pretty days. It's a little overcast today, but it's pretty warm. It's nice. Blossoming. It's not bad, I can tell you that. It's a, it's a it's a beautiful day. I've I've been looking forward to talking to you for a long time, so I really appreciate you making the time to do it. Sure. I I love uh discussing myself. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with people like you that that usually shine a a a positive light on me as opposed to my wife or somebody like that. <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce you to the voice that you hear there. That's Bill LeBounty. He's here with us. He's a diverse artist, both in terms of his abilities, but also his styles of writing. He is a performing and recording artist. His most recent album, I would call it kind of a bluesy R&B affair. It's called Into Something Blue. And it features not only his own material, but also songs written by the likes of Ray Charles, The Drifters, Bob Dylan. Bill LeBounty is a keyboardist and synthesist, and he's worked in the studio with everyone from James Taylor to Patti LaBelle. And as a songwriter, his work has been recorded by a great number of artists. Steve Warner, Brooks and Dunn, Ronnie Millsap, a duet of Tanya Tucker with Delbert McClinton. Gino Vanelli, Jimmy Buffett, Steve Goodman, Waylon Jennings, to name but a few. In fact, there have been more than 100 songs of his that have been recorded by other artists. He's performed in the U.S., France, Japan. It's a great pleasure to have Bill LeBounty with us. Hey, thanks, Paul, and, and thanks to whoever may be listening. There were no lies in that last statement you made, so that's good. <laughs> There were, at least I don't think there are any lies now. Well, Bill, could you say what it is in music that gives you the most joy? Boy, you know, I, I've thought about that before. And I think what, I think the most joyful thing about music is it's one of the few things in life that you can't really appreciate, create, or listen to without being in the present in the moment. Generally, when you're in the moment, you're pretty happy. I think even, well, generally, sometimes Mm -hmm. we're in the moment in a a horrible way, but normally 
being in the moment's nice. You can't follow a rhythm. You can't dance along the top of a melody, all of that stuff. You just kind of have to be zoned right in on the time that happens to be, that you happen to be standing in. Hmm. So that's a nice thing about music. And the, the other thing is, uh, for me, it, it's something that's run in my family for many, many years, generations, and and passed down to various members of the family. And I was one that was lucky enough to to find it, my place in it. I had two aunts who were both piano players. Well, they were great aunts. My grandmother and two other aunts were old ragtime style piano players. And when I was a little boy, I would I would sit on their laps while they played and put my arms over their arms. And they're kind of doing that left-handed ragtime, little finger on the bass, hand on the chord, and then the melody with the right hand. And when they would finish, I would assume that same position, move my hands back and forth, move my right arm the same way. And of course, it was all gobbledygook, but it was it, it was the right rhythm. <laughs> and so sometimes you'd play something randomly that actually sounded good, and uh, and my aunts would go, "Oh, Billy, that is so beautiful!" And, <laughs> oh boy, that just that sent me on my way. In the area of the country you're from, you're from the the Pacific Northwest. Is that true? I essentially I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I was born in Wisconsin, oh. and when I was very young, about seven years old, my family moved to Oregon, and I started grade school and and uh, pretty much grew up there. I graduated high school, continued living there and making music. So when I think of my childhood, I usually think of that little town in eastern Oregon where I grew up and where I really started generally professionally playing music as a kid. And uh, I, th- I went back to Wisconsin from time to time because, it, like I say, that's where all, there, there were musicians in my family. I had uncles who, who played. And, I, of course, having been born there uh, and having all those relatives, I would go back frequently and visit Christmases and holidays. So I guess I'm a northern boy, which I saw the New York on your call. I, I, I take it you are familiar with the East Coast. Yes, sir. I sure am. Yeah. I'm curious, what kind of last name is LeBounty? What 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 ancestry is that? It's um, Canuck. Ah. Oh, Canuck. Uh, it's Canadian, French Canadian. It's kind of like the northern version of a Cajun. And uh, on my father's side, my old, my grandfathers and great grandfathers, who I never really met, I, had, I remember my grandfather were all, they called them frogs up there because for some reason a lot of uh, Canucks have big freckles. I was born with a lot of freckles, so. So a lot of them would get the nickname Frog, but they were all trappers and bear trappers. And I remember I asked my grandpa once where he lived when he was a little boy, and he said, I lived in this coat. He had a big fur coat. <laughs> and uh, basically, yeah, I mean, he probably did. Or he And certainly his father, they just lived in the woods, and they and they lived off the fat of the land. 
and living up there, it wasn't really very fat, so they probably scuffled around quite a bit. But so that's that's French Canadian. But I've been to France, and uh, when I go to Paris, I've told people that I'm French, and they say, "No, you're not. You're you're Canadian." <laughs> so I guess there was a difference, even though I had a French name. Interesting. When did you start to realize that you had this ability that not only could you play someone else's music, but you could create melodies and things of yourself? As I'm sure a lot of baby boomers at that time, like me, successful and mid-successful, realized if they were going to try to pursue rock and roll, which is what we played in the early 60s to the late 60s, they if they really wanted to make records, that was it. If you wanted to make records, you had to you couldn't just record somebody else's song in order to make a big a splash of some kind. You had to write something, you had to create your own. And um so really that was the only time it ever occurred to me, the first time it occurred to me that I needed to create music and create words. And also I had a there was a, I had a friend who at the time I think his name was Butch. He was twenty six and he was much older than I was because I was like sixteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen when I met him. And uh, he was a guitar player and he was a songwriter. He actually sort of identified which back in sixty four, sixty five, sixty six, you didn't meet many people that identified that said, I, I'm I'm a songwriter. And um and so I would listen to him, and I was with him a lot when I was a kid because the first band I was in was with him and a bunch of older guys. And um, I would listen to him go through the process of putting songs together. He was actually a pretty good writer, songwriter. He died early. But I remember, and he, and he worshipped, he worshipped, the artists he really worshipped were country artists at the time, Merle Haggard. Waylon Jennings, and uh, you know the who else was wrote a lot of stuff back then. He, but I remember he would say, you know, I want to be, a, I want to go to Nashville, and I want to get a songwriter deal at Tree Music, Tree Publishing, because that's where all the really great songwriters are. That made an impression on me as a kid, because that was something that wasn't common knowledge in the Pacific Northwest among kids who were trying to learn Beatles songs. And eventually the Beatles came along, 65 or 66. So that was pretty inspirational. He and the fact that uh, at, at a certain point, I had bands that, that were doing well regionally. But of course, everybody's goal was we used to call it make it. We're going to make it. And so I thought, well, I'll write some songs. I said it. Remember, I wrote on a clavinet. I had a Wurlitzer piano, a Hammond organ, and a clavinet. And for some reason, I I like to write the songs. A lot of older songwriters like me, keyboard players, wrote on Whirly, which I did too. But for some reason, I wish and I wish I had that clavinet now. I'll bet it would be it would be very vintage and it'd probably be worth a lot of money. <laughs> Who would you say are the songwriters that would probably have made the biggest influence on you? Dylan. Bob Dylan, for sure. Yeah? 
I started listening to his music. What was the name of the album? Uh, Freewheeling. Ah, uh, yeah. Bob Dylan. And uh, it had... Uh, what did it have? It had, I'm trying to remember this, the one that had like 19 verses that about, there's hard rain, it's going to fall. I would listen to that over and over again. And at the time, I mean, that was like, to me, that was the 60s song. And I would ask, and I was so impressed, and I would ask my mother to listen, and she just didn't get it, you know, and uh, it was it was a generational thing then. And I, and I would ask my father to listen who was a World War II vet and stuff, and it would just piss him off. You know, I had to, like, stand in front of the record player to keep him from coming and throwing it off the record. But, and, I, and that, to me, was impressive, because I thought, wow, if he must really be saying something if even my parents don't get it. You know? <laughs> and then when I was, a, I think I was a junior in high school, like a Rolling Stone, which was his very first radio hit came out and I remember they would play the I think it was a six minute long cut on the radio and I I just I that just blew me away you didn't hear things like that up until then I'd listened I didn't even I wasn't even hip to the black, really great black R&B artists as a kid I listened to the Beach Boys and then the Beatles and the only way I found out about James Brown and Ray Charles and all of those people were through my older friends, like this Butch that I talked about. He'd, I'd play him a Beach Boys song, and and he'd say, I, you should hear Chuck Berry do that song if you want to hear something great. And so I listened to Chuck Berry, and I thought, he's right. Same with the Isley Brothers. The Beatles did Twist and Shout. He said, gee, that's no, you should listen to the Isley Brothers do that. And, <laughs> and that's how I got into, in, into uh, R&B and all of that stuff. And I imagine that was the same for a lot of USA kids at that time. Although in the Pacific Northwest, we were kind of stranded up there in the trees in the North and we didn't have access. Like if you grew up in the South, I imagine it would have been different for people who would not only have access to it, but like Elvis would be walking around hand in hand with listening to it, you know? So, so, and back then, it was such a different music business because it was regional. If you lived in the Pacific Northwest, you had your own style of everything from music to the way you walked and stuff. I mean, they sold different things on billboards than they did if you went south and went down into Northern California. It was a whole other different world. It was like they were, places were like different planets musically, and I sort of miss that. Don't you? <laughs> the variety of culture, you know, from state to state. Now we're lucky if we find it from country to country, you know. But back then it was to be a kid. And we had a 1946 Cadillac hearse that we put all our gear in and we go from town to town. You felt like you were Christopher Columbus or something, you know. You go, you go to you go from. Or Eastern Oregon all the way up to Portland, Oregon, and play, go to Seattle. When I was a kid, we ditched school and and went to Portland to hear the Beatles. Oh, well. And that was, that was a real inspirational thing for me because, well, the hysterics that went on 
the I think it was called the Paramount Theater where they played in Portland, and and the power went out at some point, or the power went out, and so the PA shut down and everything, and it and it was maybe the last half hour of the concert, and they did the rest of their set acoustic, acoustically screaming, you know. I guess Ringo was jumping up and down, making the backbeat, and and uh, you couldn't hear him. You could barely hear him, and that was pretty. That was impressive to me. That was wild. But I don't know how songwritery this conversation is. No, it's cool though. I'm getting kind of nostalgic, I guess. Oh, good. I'm curious about. What was going through your head when you decided to go to Nashville? What was the, what were you feeling when, when, and what, what led you to believe, you know what, I'm going to head down to Tennessee? I lived in LA for years. The first place where you went back then, like in the Pacific Northwest to make it, it was, was LA. And uh, on the way to LA, depending on which route you took, but the common one, you go through Vegas. And so really the, the first, the first taste of that kind of music business was Vegas for me. And a lot of rock bands, this was like 68, 69 were getting gigs in Vegas. And, um, there was a place of course called, it was called the Agogo. It was the only rock joint in Vegas and it was on the strip and at that time there were there was there wasn't too much yet on the strip but this was the if you had a rock band you could play at the Agogo and uh as opposed to a showroom you know where where you'd have to learn everybody else's hits and all of that so we went to Vegas and then from Vegas not far to LA and I ended we ended up what we did first in LA was was you could go into a place like Gold Star or SunWest Studios on Sunset. You could rent the studio and record in there. Sometimes if you even sidemen, of course, we had a band. We didn't need to do that. But that was back at the time when there were people like Glenn Campbell and Leon Russell walking around doing sessions. and Not my sessions, but doing sessions. So we'd go in um, SunWest and cut maybe four sides, you know, which would be like two forty fives. And then we'd take the masters back back up to Oregon or Boise, Idaho, which was sort of our headquarters then and press them. And then that was at a time when you could take take them to a station and they'd just start playing them, you know, if they you know, if they liked them. And so like it's that's like instant fame and your little pond didn't really need to go to LA and stay, but we ended up going to LA with a band. I, we had a band called Fat Chant, and it was a horn band. And it was at the time when Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and Chicago, and all that stuff was happening. And we played Hoot Night at uh, at the Troubadour, and I remember that was a great night. And there were label people there and handing us their cards and stuff. And we ended up getting a record deal on RCA. So then you had to stay in LA. <laughs> you couldn't go running. I remember a couple of guys still wanted to go back up for their their girlfriends were graduating. <laughs> they wanted to go to the prom or something like that. So I lived in in LA and I made rec I made my own records 
I found a producer I worked with. It was the real old school time when people like Artie Rip and, and uh, these New York guys. That was back when a songwriter, you didn't really know what publishing was. You got performances and it was, and your producer sort of shoddily explained to you what the publishing business consisted of, not telling you that you were getting whatever the hell he decided you should get, you know, mm-hmm. and those were the best deals. They weren't, they weren't like, that was the best you could do. It took years to realize that that much of the music business, what gener- what publishing really meant. And of course it's come to mean a hell of a lot more now than it did back then. But anyway, I, I lived in LA from 68, 67 through 1982. Oh, okay. So that was a few years and, and, uh, and did my own records. I was on RCA first and then I did some sites on Capitol. And then finally I went to Warner Brothers and made records, made a couple records. And then I lost my Warner's deal back when we called it the, uh, the great disco wars when disco music was really hot and I wasn't really that into it. Plus music was changing. They were signing punk bands and, and um, they called it new wave music. And um, I was on Warner's when Bonnie Raitt was there. And uh, one day this, they just purged. Everybody lost their deal. And, and, uh, I remember sitting around with uh, with a bunch of people, and Bonnie was there, and somebody said, well, what are you going to do? And I, I don't know. I'm going to go back up to Oregon and work for the highway department or something. And somebody went to Bonnie, and she, and she said, they said, what are you going to do? And she said, I'm going to play the blank and blues. That's what I do. I play the blues. And I remember thinking, yeah, well, good luck with that, you know. That. But it, in a way, and... And another year later, I, I moved to Nashville, which I may have never done, except I met my wife here on a trip here, and we fell in love. And she was a songwriter, Becky Foster. And it wasn't long before I'd been in Nashville for maybe a year and a half. I was on Screen Gems music, and somebody said, Bonnie Raitt's going to be here today listening to songs. Do you have anything you could play for her? She came in with... Uh, who is that great producer that did that first album with I Can't Make You Love Me on it? He was a bass player, I remember. I can't think of his name now, but Don anyways, was. she came in with him. Who? Was it Don Was? Don Was, exactly. Yes. And um I didn't get a song I didn't get a cut, but I sure wanted to. And uh I remember saying, Well, what kind of stuff is are you doing? Is she doing? They said blues. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't say good luck then because by that time it was sort of anything goes that was getting into the eighties and the music business. And I knew Don was, was a cool guy. Cause he'd been on it. He was not was had been out that he did with his brother. But, uh, the people that did get songs on that album were lucky and good. I'm sure. So anyway, I'm, yeah, that I moved to Nashville in 1983 I lost my deal on Warner's, and I used to tell people, if I lose my deal, 
I'm going to just go back up to Oregon and work for the highway department because <laughs> I thought that would be nice to work in the Pacific Northwest outdoors. And, and I thought my back's still good. Little did I know what was going to happen to my back after years of hauling a Hammond, Oregon around. But, um, no, I came down here and the, I loved Nashville from the first time I got here. It was just, there, it was definitely a music town, but it was, a whole different ball game than Los Angeles. I mean, there was a, a sort of a traditional net for people who were in the music business here, who were seriously either as a songwriter or, or a singer, artist, or, or, or even session players. And when one person won, everybody won. It was just this little community of people. And uh, it wasn't that way in LA, which... It's probably good because you don't you don't get to be a hardened professional uh, independent artist by without having some comp- some competitive things going on in New York and L.A. We're we're like that. Like I remember telling people at the time if if I went into you know why Nashville was different and 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 uh, I said well if I if I went in to get a deal in LA and and auditioned somewhere and played my songs and they sounded just like Sting, I would probably be told, you sound exactly like Sting, you know, you sound like Sting, so you need to develop your own thing. Whereas in Nashville, if you sound like Johnny Cash or any of any of the classic country, it was a tradition of of sound that you work. That was part of the whole medium. You you work in that, and it's and it's still that way, at least for the great artists. And I liked that. I liked. Uh, I guess I was tired of competing on that level. I I always wanted to be a recording artist, but mostly I just loved music. And uh, when I first got here in Nashville, I just sat and I pretended like I still had a record deal and I was making my next album. And at that time, that window of fashion and the music business was open. So I was getting a lot of cuts and, and I didn't realize those windows only stay open for a fleeting amount of time. And then you, you have to either, you know, become a professional songwriter, quote unquote, or, or, uh, stay an artist. And there's not too much difference, but you, you do, you, you have to cave to a few, um, a few professional aspects of what a songwriter is. And it's a fun cave. It's a fun, it's a, it's a fun way to compete, you know, to think this person's looking for a song. They're doing this album. If I were them, what would I want to sing, you know? So you just sort of, you can sort of stay an artist in your, in your head regardless, but you do have, if you want to be a popular songwriter, you have to be on top of everything. I remember that and I'm really not anymore Mm. (laughs) and I haven't been for a while, but you know, you have to go down and you have to read billboard and, and all of the trades. You have to see who's not just who's recording, but who's producing the record, who might be publishing it that, you know, things like that. And uh, when you stay on top of all that, you have a better chance of getting some, you know, 
who to rub elbows with, sort of. And that's the only problem, I think, with uh, probably, and it may still be that way with, you know, living in Pocatello and something with your with your band in a box or whatever. You really have to be here. You have to be it in your music town to to make it happen. I think that, at least from a professional standpoint, from a music business standpoint. But um, Becky and I together started getting a lot of records because she was a background singer who had sung, who knew everybody. She'd sung on all their records for years, and she, so she introduced me. That was luck, you know. And, and besides the fact that I fell in love with her instantly and I hope the feeling was mutual (laughs) so if I finished something like I remember I got here and I was kind of pop sounding and and, uh, she said that's not country that's pop and I'd say I know but there's I've been listening to the radio and there's this guy Steve Warner who sounds it's not pop but he's really he's really sophisticated in his approach to melody and I really like the way he sings and she said, "Oh, I know, I know him. I know how to get in touch with Steve." And uh, so she and I had just written this song called "The Weekend," and uh, she called Steve. Also, she called Steve, I think, because we had a very good friend who had just moved here, named Randy Hart, and he had just been working as a keyboard player with Roger Miller. And when he got here, he Roger no longer returned his calls, so. Becky said, I'll call Steve and see if he needs, because Steve needed a keyboard player. So when Randy went on his first gig with Steve, he had The Weekend in his pocket, the song that Becky and I had written. And that was kind of typical of what happened from then on, because at that time, you know, that window of Nashville had all the people in it. That It was a generation, I think. I, I tell people that my first session, in Nashville, one of the first people I wrote with here was Don Cook. Hmm. And we became fast friends, and we wrote a bunch of songs. At that time, Don was a writer, songwriter at Tree. He took me down to Tree. I finally got to see Tree after those, after those years of my friend Butch telling me about it. And I loved, I loved that atmosphere and the, and all the tradition, all the pictures on the wall of these, incredible writers and but anyway don and i recorded our very first songs that we'd written together there and and um and i tell people that at that time the guys that were on my session were don who went on to be a pretty well-known producer paul worley played guitar tony brown came in because he was buddies with paul and don and uh it was kind of like a generation of guys that had sort of this, the same age and we're sort of going through the same things. I wasn't really, I I wasn't as ambitious as those guys. Those guys did really what well. they were already talking about making. They, they wanted to make records. And if you want to be a good producer, a successful producer, you just have to love making records. It almost doesn't matter which record you make. You just, just so you're doing it. It's kind of like music, you know, and of course it's a lot like music because most of the great producers here were musicians and and benefited from that too. But anyway, Nashville has been my home since 1980, the summer of 83 was when I met Becky. And she had a number one hit on the charts at the time that I met her. 
And I remember we were standing around at some function and somebody had introduced me, my, my, uh, publisher introduced me to her. And, uh, like guys do, they were all sort of bragging about the song they'd just written and talking and, and, uh, trying to persuade everybody of their mastery of the music business. And Becky was just standing there really quietly the whole time. And then later I, I went, we got a chance to talk a little more intimately and, and she had the number one song in the, in town and no, and everybody, I and that's when I realized if you're a girl, especially at that time, any female, whether she could have been a producer, a, a hit songwriter, you're a chick singer, whether you're an artist, whatever. In, in Nashville, a girl was a chick singer. So Becky was a chick singer, even though, she, you know, she was doing everything I wanted to do. But anyway, she, that was one of the reasons I really dug her because hmm. she, she knew what she was. And we wrote, we had a lot of success together and it, it was, uh, for me, it was just sort of a dream come true because I'd been through a bad marriage and I didn't think that I was going to ever be happily joined with anybody. You know, I thought I might, I would meet some nice girls, but we just really connected. So was it ever at all, was there ever any, you know, you're close to somebody like, like you're, you're close with her. Was there any kind of disagreement in terms of direction, like the creative direction of a song? Yes. And it was usually her disagreeing with me when it happened. There wasn't a whole lot of that. But maybe I would come up with a lyric or a change that uh, she didn't, she wasn't impressed with. And she'd say, you know, you you should try this. And, and I was, no, I'd never done anything like that. I wasn't really a collaborative songwriter when I got here. I was just learning how to do all that stuff. And I would get kind of grumpy and maybe get up and walk off and then come back and say, what now, what is it you're talking about? And I, and I try it and, and, uh, it was great. It would work out, you know? So she taught me a lot there too. She really kind of taught me how to write collaboratively. She wasn't always right, but mm, I would say over half the time she was right. And that, and so I would switch things around, and and uh, it was the way a collaborative process was supposed to work. So, yeah. And then, you know, I wrote with a lot of other people. It took me a long time to realize as a writer that not to approach the collaborative session like I was the evil genius, you know, that was going to bring that was going to make something happen because I was whoever I thought I was. And, and uh, because I realized early on fairly, not early enough, but everybody's that way. Everybody comes to a collaborative writing session as the evil genius. And sometimes if you just help that person nurse made their genius, you can end up with a hit. That's, that's one of the things that separate a, a professional songwriter, I think, from from just somebody who writes an an artist songwriter. First of all, you, when you write for yourself, it has to be inspired, or you won't like it and you won't finish it. But if you're writing for a uh, um, some some recording entity like Peter Cetera, whoever, uh, Steve Warner, then 
in one way it closes off sort of the, a certain kind of passion, but in another way it opens up a whole world that you might never have explored as a, as a, as an artist. And, uh, so, you know, and if you do that for long enough, it, it, I went on to make my own records as time wore on. But if you do it all the time for too long, you lose, you lose that motivation to be, to, to look down inside yourself for something that, because it takes confidence first. You, get, you know, you, you do have to like consider yourself an evil genius to really pull something out of yourself that's so you that nobody else could ever recognize it unless you convey it, you know, with your brilliant keyboard playing or singing or whatever. You can forget that. You can forget how to, it's not like how to do it. You just, you forget what motivates you to do it. And uh, in my old age, I've kind of returned to, uh, to, to, I'm, I'm an old evil genius now. No, I'm, I'm kidding, but <laughs> you, you have to kind of return to that, to that, pl- that part of yourself. Cause, and I don't do a lot of collaborative writing. Becky and I write, and that's about it. And uh, she still tells me when she doesn't care for something that I'm doing. And at this point, I find it valuable. I think I respond to her the same way I always did. I'm kind of grumpy, but then I say, well, now what did she say? <laughs> and that's kind of the way any successful collaboration is, I think. You know, the the first time I became aware of you, the first time I remember reading the name Bill LaBounty, this was, it's going on, gosh, it's going on like 19 years ago, now that I think about it, but... We're finally getting around to doing this interview, but it was, I had this, I had become obsessed around my high school years with Steve Goodman. Oh, gosh. And I had this Steve Goodman anthology, and uh, there's a song you wrote with him. I'm hoping you can tell us about writing with Steve Goodman, the song I'm talking about, Where's the Party? Oh, yeah. Well, I could go on for days about Steve. He was, he, he influenced my life, not so much as, you know, music or anything else, just who Steve Goodman was. He, he, he was just this incredible character. And when you're hanging with him, at least I did, I knew I was with some, somebody special. I never got to know John Prine very well, but I imagine knowing Prine would be the same way because they're just guys that he went deeper than just even a, a song you know he always wanted to be great and he was at what he wrote but when I met Steve I met him through uh, his manager Al Bonetta who um, also managed John but I had just written this song called Hot Rod Hearts for that Al Bonetta took to Robbie Dupree's production people. And it was a hit. It was a, like a top 10 record in, in cash box and various places. And so I got to know those guys and I got to know Al. In fact, Al was the one that would say, you should check out Nashville. You'd like Nashville. And, and I didn't think I, I thought like that would be like your second try at anything. But, but um, then he introduced me to Steve and I remember I was just knocked out with Steve just as a person. And at first I thought he was, I thought he was like 
this overdramatic guy. I didn't realize anything about his illness, but I thought he was just sort of jiving me. Like he'd say things like, "Pain is my sister." Uh, that was one of his pain is my sister something else is my brother and something is my father and uh, I didn't really know what that meant until I found out about his he had that he had leukemia and and um, Steve worked he was like one of those hardest working man in show business type guys and he was on the road all the time and he lived in Seal Beach and at that time I lived in the mountains above San Bernardino in Lake Arrowhead. And Steve, when he would be off the road for a couple of years there, you know, he'd spend time with his family in Seal Beach, but then he'd come up there with me and stay at my house in Lake Arrowhead, which was just, it was like a rented house, but it was, it was in a beautiful area. And we would write, and he would write. He wrote Don Cubman's last request, sitting on the edge of my bed when I was trying to go to sleep at three in the morning. And check out this, you know, and he'd wake me up. I'd say, go to bed, Steve. <laughs> but then, you know, when I heard any, anything he did was brilliant, and, and it was a treat to hear it. But at three in the morning after you'd have, like, a bottle of scotch with him or something, that wasn't necessarily. But we wrote a lot of stuff together. But more than anything, I just, I just loved the guy. I just loved being around him. And I wish he was still here. I wish John was still here. Steve would have, had Steve lived, he would have been in Nashville, I'm sure. And, hmm. You know, probably at the top of anybody's game. Can you remember what what the circumstances were or the inspiration maybe of that song, Where's the Party? Where's the Party? I think it was a title we heard on TV or something. We sat down and, and it was he and I in Lake Arrowhead. And we got it to basically almost to a finished stage. It needed, what it needed was Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> you know, we needed somebody like that to, who wouldn't want a Jimmy Buffett song? And Steve said, well, I know Buffett. He's a good friend of mine. He said, so I'm going to be in Florida such and such a day. And when I'm there, I'll get with Buffett. And if he likes it, can I finish it with him? And that's how that came about. Steve got with Buffett in Florida, and, and uh, Buffett wrote a bridge. That was the name of that tune. And I was thrilled because we were on, what is it? It was something in the world album that that song came out on. I always pre hoped it would be a single, as you always do. But but Where's the Party? It probably, most of the songs I did with Steve really reflected Steve more than than me and Steve would go ahead if we disagreed on something on a lyric which we did fairly often but it didn't matter I mean I remember we wrote one song I Just Keep Falling in Love was the name of the song and um, I wrote it in 4-4 four, four time and Steve wrote it in 3-4 time and it would drive me crazy because I'd be playing through the, a verse and trying to get to the chorus and Goodman's playing it and three, four time to my four, four time. I remember a friend came over and sat around while we were working and was laughing because we would both play and it sounded like we were playing two very different songs. <laughs> and I think, I think Nicolette Larson cut it and she may have done it in three quarter time and then somebody else did it and it was four, four time. <laughs> but we get a few people cut it. It was never like 
a giant smash or anything, but it was kind of typical of the way I worked with Goodman. He was just, you knew better if Steven, if Steve wanted to do something, he just did it. And, and, uh, I'd rather have that than somebody trying to get me to do something. Usually if he just did it, I just followed along with whatever he was doing. What did you think of, of Jimmy Buffett's interpretation of that song? I thought it was good. I imagine I would have enjoyed Steve's more just because Steve, it was, it identified to me with Steve that when he would play it and sing it, but I thought Buffett's was pretty cool. Yeah. I have to say Steve's version was yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, that's usually the case, you know, Steve's, he was just a special guy. The first day that I met him, I was staying at uh, Le Park in Hollywood. And I could, so when I, I would drive down from Lake Area to work in L.A., and I would stay at Le Park sometimes, especially if I had a label or a publisher who would pay for it for me. And um, I was introduced to Steve, and he came up to my room there, and, and I had a, my worry there. And... and uh, Instantly, I liked him. I didn't know whether we'd be able to write a song together, but I just liked hanging with him. And, and we we loved writing together. But the first thing he did, if you can imagine this, he was assigned to a, he had just signed to Electra Records, and they he was working on his his first project for Electra. And as labels can do, somebody, some A and R person or something, had been down to the session at the studio where he was working and they didn't, they didn't like the fact that he was putting steel guitar and mandolins on something. They wanted the rec record to be cool and hip. And they didn't think those kind of influence, they, they didn't think Steve should make that kind of country folky record. But anyway, he had complained to me about that. And, and after we got finished working, we went Nate or no, we went Nate after, but he said, Hey, I've got a meeting at Electra why don't you come with me? And I thought, you know, I was on Warner's then, and I thought, why on earth would you want to bring anybody to a business meeting at your record label? I mean, <laughs> I used to, like, stay awake for nights, worrying, having anxiety about meetings at my record label. I was with Warner's then, and I'd have meetings in Burbank, and and I'd have to play them stuff, and they would tell me, they were trying to, they were trying to give you direction and I don't know if that's still, I don't think that even goes on anymore, but so we go down to Electra and I'll never forget this because I, I didn't know Steve very well. And I was just totally stunned that he wanted me to go with him. And I didn't want to go with him and, and he had to cajole me to go with him. So we go to this guy's office. I can't remember his name. I probably shouldn't repeat his name, but he he starts. His name was Bob. I can't remember his last name, but but I'd say his first name because it's sort of part of the story. Because he starts lecturing Steve about pop music and have records and what he wants to do with him, and and Steve goes, Bob, where did you grow up? <laughs> and Bob goes, Long Island. So he goes, oh, yeah. And he goes back to talking. She says, Bob, 
Have you ever taken a risk about uh, in your whole life about <laughs> anything? Which I and I'm sitting there thinking, holy shit, you know he. And Bob, you know, took it the way I would expect anybody to take it as an insult, you know. And he says, "Here's a taking risk." And Steve says, "Oh, okay." He says, "He says because I take risks. All, all risks, all, all songwriters, all artists, recording artists do take a risk. That's all we do. And if I don't have a record label to take my risks with me, then I don't have a record label." And I'm thinking, why am I here? Jesus. But anyway, that that's how the meeting went. Hmm. Then we left. And Steve said, he's an SMV. And I thought, yeah, but what do you... And he didn't care. I mean, he just did not care. The guy could have said, get out of here and never come back. We're not going to do your record. Of course, they didn't. Because, I mean, he, Steve Carey, even at that time, he was sort of iconic. I just thought, I really have to get to know this guy. I mean, I, I can't believe this. But that was just a typical day for Steve. <laughs> you ever taken a risk in your life? <laughs> I just, I couldn't believe that. And it's something that you've always wanted to say, you know, at the, in those kind of circumstances. That's great. <laughs> well, Bill, can you tell us, who was the first person ever that cut one of your songs, your very first interpretation that someone made? My very first cut was probably 1976, maybe 75, even earlier. And it was when I first moved from Oregon to Lake Arrowhead. And I had a producer, publisher, manager, one of those old school New York type deals where the guy just runs everything and then he pays you what he thinks. But anyway, I, I had, um, and I wasn't near LA. And in fact, he wanted me up there. So I was kind of isolated. He didn't want me running around LA, you know, getting in, getting him in trouble or get, or weakening whatever he thought he could get. But anyway, I lived in this house in this place called Sky Forest. Beautiful, beautiful place. It was like 7,000 feet up in the, in the Lake Arrowhead Mountains and down the street from me was where this guy, Gene McDaniels, lived. I don't know if you know Gene McDaniels' name, but he was, when he was a kid, he recorded 100 Pounds of Clay. Do you remember that record? He took 100. But at that time, he had a hit, he had a hit R&B record on, uh, oh, I can't think of her name. Feel like making love. That was the name. Ah, oh, Roberta Flack. On this great, uh, Roberta Flack. He was producing Roberta Flack. And um, he somehow, I think I went over to his house. With, it had nothing to do with my manager or my publisher. And, we were, and I met him. And I had this song. He had a piano there in his living room. And I played it for him. It was called Room 205. And he loved that song. And it was in three, four time. Now that I think about it. And he was producing. He was just bringing her into the studio, Mary Clayton. He said, Mary would love this, man. He said, it sounds kind of churchy because it's in three, four time. And, uh, you know, I, like a lot of people, I knew her by name. It was one of those names you just knew. And I, what I didn't realize is, is, uh, 
I knew her because I knew her name because she's the one that had just sung on that Rolling Stone record, just a shot away. And she was, she like shouted out the intro, just a shot away. She was, she was a very well-known background singer. She sang with the Ray Lefts for years. She was the one singing background on that's what I say. She would answer Ray. But anyway, that was my first song. You brought that song to her. And, um, that was luck for me because it wasn't so much it was a hit song. It was just like a record that, to this day, I just love the way it turned out. And you don't really, that doesn't really happen now all that often if, if you're trying to make a living writing songs. But that particular record, I think you can find it still on uh, YouTube. Stuff was called Room 205. And, and Gene came by my house one day and took me out to his car where he had his a great stereo and he sat and played it for me and I was just knocked my shoes off Mary Clayton and then after that I think I met I met Bob Gaudio and Frankie Valley through my through my publisher manager producer and uh, Frankie did a couple of my songs so that was probably the second on the list of of something happening with my songs, but I had a record deal at this time. I was making, I'd had, I was probably working on my second album when I met Frankie. And, and so most of the songs I'd written were just things for, to sing for, I was on Warner brothers then. And so, and the, the nice thing about if I ever gave somebody advice who was young, because now you, there's sort of this cult of songwriter where a lot of young people say, well, I want to be a hit songwriter. Really, if you want to do well in this business, I wouldn't ever introduce myself if I was young as a songwriter. I would introduce myself as an artist and do it in a way that's kind of passionate and conceited. Because that's what's going to, even if you're not, if you can pull it off. I didn't, I'm saying that like I did it, but I never did do that. But if you're if if you're an, a recording artist, that's the best promo you could ever get as a songwriter. And the really successful recording artists, of course, could care less whether they were ever promoted as a songwriter. But people want to hear your heart, you know. And and the whole idea of songwriter, a lot of times, is is not about your heart. It's about scoring and getting a hit and having a hook, and, and uh, which all has its value. But when you're young, you should want to be an artist. Hmm. I guess that's my general advice. And, and of course, a, an artist who sings his own songs. Singer-songwriter, I guess that, that term came into being around, that was the end of the 60s when we started hearing from James Taylor and stuff. Neil Diamond was the first real singer-songwriter. You might be the only person on Earth who has had both a Buffett cut and a Gino Vanelli cut. <laughs> yeah. Can you remember working with Gino Vanelli? Sure. I had a place. Becky and I used to keep a place here, our own, our house. And then we would rent a place in Malibu and we would drive out to LA. Every, we would spend the summers in LA and the winters here. And, um, I met Gino in Malibu 
there was a restaurant called El Coyote in in Malibu. There's one in Hollywood too. Uh, but I think the first one was in Malibu, and it was way out almost to where Canaan Dune is. And you would see, you know, Johnny Carson might come in to pick up some burritos there or something. And that's how Malibu was back then. Dylan lived out there. But anyway, I was out there, and I was eating with my collaborator that day who knew Gino. So when Gino came in, he introduced me. And, um, and, um, I'm trying to, I can't even, you know what? I can't remember our title, the title that we wrote, but. Be total stranger. I was very impressed with him as, as an artist. I mean, he's perfect example of somebody who, who is passionate about what they sing. The one thing that stands out about meeting Gino and going to his house to write is I got out of my car and started walking to the front door. And as I was walking, this giant Irish wolfhound started galloping toward me, barking. I mean, it was one of those, I don't know if you've seen like the healthy, full-grown Irish wolfhounds, but they're like the size of a pony or something. Yeah. (laughs) And he came bounding up to me and I thought, holy shit, he's just going to eat me. Here and uh, by that time, Gino was out, and he says he won't hurt you. And I thought, oh! And he bounded up. He put his paws on both my shoulders and knocked me down. Once he had me down, he just started licking my face, like like he was a puppy dog, you know. <laughs> basically, he that was his way of saying hi to somebody. Okay. So I remembered that. And I always remembered that Irish wolfhounds are really, even though they look horrible and horribly ferocious, they're not like a pit bull or even a German shepherd. They're really friendly dogs. But anyway, Gino was working on his album, and he he worked with his brother then. And he had this really decked out. He had a home studio with everything in it that you needed back then. You don't need anything now but a Pro Tools box and and a keyboard. But back then, he had all the stuff. His brother played drums, too, I think. And I and he was working on that album, I think, that Total Stranger was on. It might be a difficult question, but of all the different cuts you've gotten, has somebody done a best version of something you wrote? Like the best interpretation of a Bill of Bounty song? You know, I think... Steve's version, Steve Warner's version of The Weekend with Tony Brown producing. And Tony, especially back then, he's pretty much a, a purist. He he loves country. He knows what it means. He knows where it comes from. He knows where he wants it to go. And I played, at that time, Jimmy Bowen still lived here. And I first played the song for Jimmy Bowen. And Bowen wanted to cut it on Steve. And I think both Bowen and Tony produced on that album that the weekend was on, but Oh, I'd been in the studio one other time on with somebody. I won't say their name who was going to do the song. I was not, I hadn't lived here that long. And when I demoed the song, I used all my little digital toys that you could, the DX seven and all this stuff that you could get back then. And, to sort of make things at that time it stood out in Nashville. It didn't take long before everybody was in that world. But 
I had an arpeggiator that went boop, 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 boop for the background of it and all these different things. And I, when I played the song for Tony, I played, I, I, my memory's coming back, but I, Tony heard it before Steve did. And Tony just said, that's, that's, uh, pop. We don't do pop here, LeBounty. That's it. Go take it back to LA. Take it to Christopher Cross, which is who Becky and I had in mind <laughs> when we were writing it. And, uh, he said, I don't do that. So then Steve got a hold of it, and Steve had enough pull in his career that he was going to do the song by God, and no matter what. And, and Tony was doing sides on him then. And I thought, oh, he's going to do it with Tony. What's going to happen? And uh, one day I got a call from Tony, and he said, well, Bonnie, can you just come over here and do what you did with the demo? <laughs> he said, we're just going to make your demo. And I thought, and that's not why I always thought it was the greatest cut that I've ever had. It was really due to Tony's taste and ears, because I never would have produced a record that sounded as, at that time, it sounded really great to me. It had, it had all the organic stuff that you want in a country, sort of a country feel, but it also had all the ideas that I liked, you know. And to this day, I think, when I hear it, I think Tony really made that record sound great and of course Steve always does he's playing and singing so I'd have to say that record just from a standpoint of something that I just like the way it sounds it would be that the Mary Clayton record stands out because it was the first uh, recording I ever had and, and, I, and to this day that one still sounds good too to me well today I went to the dentist and the dentist was kind enough. I was listening as, as he was going to work. I was listening to your album, Into Something Blue. And yeah. it's a it's a really great album. And I'm hoping you can tell us about that title cut. Into Something Blue. That song also, is fairly, it goes back quite a ways. And um, I had some real close possibilities i mean it was actually oh my mind is who is the artist that did he's she's crazy about the boy uh she's he's crazy about the girl she's crazy about the girl. Uh, and she married oh man anyway it had been recorded you're not talking and, about and, trisha yearwood trisha yearwood oh. had cut it and then what I heard from the session players who were on the session is they went out for dinner and when they came back, she was supposed to sing it and, and nah, she just couldn't get into it. So it just kind of sat in the can on her. And, and so nothing really happened with it, but I, it was, it's a song that, that I really love doing. I do it much better now than I did when it was on that album, but it has Larry on it. So having Carlton, play some some of his wonderful guitar puts it in a different category but it was a song that i wrote with sam warber who is an old friend and collaborator and when we wrote it into something blue we both thought of it as a as a female song you know she's going to go and change and but then realized later that you know that that it can be translated by a guy or a girl in fact uh, bill medley then much later did his version of it 
on an album that he cut with Steve Dorff. And it's, it's fantastic. It, it, Steve Dorff loves to gussy things up. And it's, I say gussy, but it, he does it in a really big, beautiful way, always with string arrangements. And, and he did the whole thing with, uh, with Bill. So it's just about, and I still do the song live when I perform or when I used to perform before this whole pandemic thing. It was one that I, that I always went over real well that I do. Tell me about getting Larry Carlton to play on this record. Well, Larry and I go way back. We knew each other way back in the late sixties, early seventies. And, um, he was basically a session player then, although he, Larry was the first session player that was notable enough that he, he built a studio in his house and he didn't go out anymore to do dates to overdub. Everything had to come to his house. So if you wanted him on your record, you had to bring, you had to send over the master and he would do it all by himself. And you just got, you know, if, if he didn't like it, he didn't care. Because also, Larry is one of the few instrumentalists and really notable session players to really consider themselves an artist. And he wanted to make records. And he he wanted to define himself as an instrumentalist. We became friends that when I was on my, just getting ready to leave Warner Brothers, I was doing a last project in the hopes that they would pick me up. And Tommy LaPuma said, you need to go and do do these sides with Larry. And that sort of bonded Larry and I, because I spent, we spent a month and a half or so working on these sides. And I just drive into it, down to his house every day and stay in LA. And uh, not every day, I just drive down to his house and, and we would work every day. I remember one of the songs was She Loves My Car that I did with Larry. And and so when it came time later on, I did this album. I thought, I'm through making records now. I'm a songwriter. I'd moved to Nashville. I'd met Becky. And then I got a call from this guy in Paris. He said, Bill Bounty, do you know that you are a star here? And I laughed because I knew that wasn't true. But he's... But, he said, you're a hit. Uh, apparently, I had a record there in France that was a hit called Living It Up. And uh, he told me if I did another album, I would sell a lot of records in France and Europe. So I, I decided to do another album. But I, I was my own record company and fundraiser and all of that, which people didn't do as much back then. Today, it's nothing because everybody's capable of making a record. People like, you know, they mix their records on airplanes and stuff now and while they're between New York and L.A. or something. And, but I decided to do another record, and uh, I was thinking about guitar players. I had some really good guitar on it. Brian Ray, who plays with Paul McCartney now, played guitar on that record, too. It was called... It wasn't into something blue. It was, the, it was the first record Larry played on called The Right Direction. It's an album that came before into something blue. And I called Larry and I, I had a 
like one or two songs I wanted him to play on. And he showed up with his sound guy and everybody, and he played on the whole record from beginning to end. That really instantly put the record up in a notch that I never could have all by myself. And I recommend the record just because of Larry. And after that, he played on everything I did independently. He didn't play it on the whole album, but he would play. I think I followed that with an album called um, Back to Your Star that Larry's on. And then this last one, Into Something Blue. And Larry played on everything on that record, too, because at the time I was being I was going to be managed by Larry's manager. I got Larry on sort of an inside situation. I think he had a great time. We both had a great time. And Larry moved to Nashville. And also, when Larry goes to Tokyo and plays, or when he used to, Larry's still playing. I think Larry played all the way through the pandemic. But he would... I was going to Tokyo and playing because those independent records that I did were doing well in places like Japan and France. Italy. I never went to Italy, but so I'd go to Tokyo and a couple times Larry was there at the same time I was. And so he'd have me come and be a special guest at places he was playing. And then I and then I would have Larry be my special guest. There's, the clubs were the Cotton Club is where I played in Tokyo and trying to the bottom line is was Larry's church, sort of there. So We've been fast friends for quite a few years. You don't always hear from Larry because he might be the hardest working. He might work more than any other musician I know. <laughs> but Bill, would you say that there has been a compliment that has meant the most to you through the years as an artist? Probably, but I can't. Uh, I'm not sure what that might be. I, it's funny on on the record. Oh, I did a um, a box set. France, it was Warner France. Warner and Rhino put out a box set on me, and part of the box set was quotes from people that I that were close associates creatively with me, like Russ Titleman, Tommy Lapuma. I did records with Larry, and they all said something nice about me. You know, I had to beg them to, but <laughs> but they, no, they, they some of them were already quoted, and, and and it wasn't my idea to do that. It was the label. This guy from the label said that would really be cool to just have quotes from all these guys on the box, and but I can't re <laughs> I can't remember the quotes, but I'll bet that. Um, one of them was probably, I think what Tommy said was really floored me, and I can't remember what he said. <laughs> so uh, you'll have to look at the box. You can look at, if you look for it, you can go online and find the box probably on Amazon or something. But I think they've been sold out for a long time. You know, they only probably press like, you know, 800 of them or something. But, you know, something I've noticed throughout this interview your sense of humor seems to be a lot like Don Cook's. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Don Cook is one of my very best friends of all time. Don and I talk almost every day. In fact, when I heard from you, I called Don because I, 
I'd seen him doing an interview. Did he do an interview with you that was on computer or was it on the phone? He called in. Yeah, it was on the, it was on the phone. Okay. But I think I heard some of that. Oh, might have cool. been on his, his Facebook page or something like that. So I knew that, but I didn't know it was you. And I, somebody told me that, that Don had talked to you. So I just called and asked about you and he was very complimentary about you. We're talking to you and, and you. Cool. <laughs> well, something he said in his interview, it always, you know, I, whenever I think about him, I always think about this. He talked about moving to Nashville. And he said there was no risk for him. He said I was a failure where I was from, so I just packed up my <laughs> failure and moved. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that always makes me laugh. <laughs> you know, that's kind of you know people when we were coming to Nashville, you weren't especially proud of it. You just thought, you know, I've always heard it's all about country music and country music to me, and I'm sure it was to Don too was always something that was just part of our lives. You know, it was like um, Wonder Bread or some, or a certain kind of brand of potato chips. You know, it was just not exciting. I was excited by Dylan and rock and all of that stuff. But, and, and it took me a while to realize that all of those, all of those things exist within the, within the parameters of country music too. I mean, country, I didn't really appreciate Hank Williams when I moved here. I didn't know who the Carters were, but after years of living here, those things started meaning more to me. In fact, way back then, I remember there was guys that played acoustic guitars. I would call that elbow music, and I'd say, man, I don't want to do any elbow music, but it's not. You know, that's what I learned. I learned. I didn't know there were finger pickers, and there was all these wonderful... The country consisted of a hell of a lot more than what may have been on the radio growing up. And I played a lot of country music when I was a kid because I didn't always get where I grew up in the Northwest and Idaho. There weren't always outlets to play rock. There were a few places that strictly you had to learn Merrill Haggard and, and uh, Buck Owens and all of that stuff in order to, to make a living. So country was always something that was there for me. It was just... You know, it was kind of like a utility that I just took it for granted. And countries like that, isn't it? It's like everybody feels like they identify with it on some level. But I don't know where that level is anymore. The music business now is uh, it's in a state of flux, I think. But it's going gonna, it's gonna to land somewhere. It has to. <laughs> yeah. it's There are a lot of good things about the Internet that, I have nephews who are musicians. I have a nephew who's really a great musician. He lives in Minneapolis, and he's one of those multi-instrumentalists. He plays drums, bass, keyboards, he sings. He works with Ricky Peterson, who's this leading keyboard player. What I was going to say is the Internet is all about exposure now. You need to get something on YouTube and... uh there are a lot of independent artists now that wouldn't have existed when I was in the music business because it was sort of a closed little circle that you'd have to work really hard to get in. Now it's just, it's the widest circle in the world. You can drown in the middle of it, you know, but you can find anybody's music on YouTube. And there are things on YouTube that 
let's face it, this is incredibly good. And then sometimes the label, well, the labels pick it up, but it's just, it's just so hard to make money. Yeah. Hmm. For somebody old like me, I have, like, I've learned enough from Pat, my nephew, that if you're young and you're an artist and you're starting out and you don't have any history at all, it's really hard to, to be exposed in any real meaningful way. Whereas with me, I was doing albums back before anybody was born that people all over Europe, it's like a little peg. It's not a big peg. But when I make a record, it's a little place I can hang my hat, you know, my little album, and, and I'll get some attention. And I probably should make another record. I'm in the, I'm in the process of it. I've got about like half a record made, but it's just so different now. If, if some label would just come to me and give me 20 grand or something, <laughs> but right, I can still make records because I have all the things at home that I need to do it. One thing I don't have though is the money to recompense the really great instrumental artists like Larry and the people who I know them all, but after a while it just gets embarrassing to call them and ask if they'll come and, and play on your, on your project. But that's basically where I'm at now. And, and uh, you can do some good projects that way, and I don't intend to stop. What would you say is the best thing about being Bill Bounty? My wife, probably my daughter. I have a, a beautiful, incredibly intelligent daughter who lives in Chicago. Went to the University of Chicago, and now she's in back at the University of Chicago getting her law degree. And I just that having a child that's that you're proud of is is really a good thing to have because you don't have to rely on on somebody else really to make you feel good as long as she'll always make me feel good no matter what she does. I sort of feel the same about my wife. And having been able to have a life in music, doing exactly what I wanted to do, I may not have got, gotten rich every day from doing it, but it's always exactly what I've ever wanted to do. So not everybody is, is that lucky. That's I consider that luck. My dad used to say when I was a teenager, I had this old upright piano and I would bang on it and he'd come and he hated it. And he'd say, you know, you'll never get anywhere sitting on your butt in front of that thing. <laughs> and it was always really sad to me because <laughs> but I don't want to do anything. You know? <laughs> you know, so I always just thought, well, you'll know, wherever I get, that's what I'm going to do. Dad. Well, anybody out there, I still have that voice in my head. Oh, go ahead. You said you still have that voice in your head. Yeah, that's the only problem with that. You have to go to have analysis to get. <laughs> you have to have behavioral training to get rid of that voice. Hmm. Well, anybody out there who is interested, they can go to BillLabounty.com. It's L-A-B-O-U-N-T-Y. And for those who have been following your music, whether they're in Japan or, or France or, or here in the U.S. of A., is there anything in closing you would like to say before we go? 
Well, I feel really grateful for my audience. It's it's a modest audience. I don't think my audience would want to be thought of as a big audience. And I'm just grateful to have an audience at this stage in my life who might care about the music that I want to make because I'm still making it and fully intend to continue. And so I guess it's thank you. Thank you for being there. And Bill, thank you for being here. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Thank you for this interview. Thank you, Paul. I had a great time. All right, sir. Well, I look forward to the next album of yours. We'll be listening. Yeah. Well, you'll be among the first to know about it. Beautiful. All right, sir. Well, until next time. All right. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye.